We love a good story, one that is filled with all the emotion. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Boy loses girl in the sequel to another world monster. Boy gets girl back, only to find she's actually saving him. Boy seems to get girl back, but the cliffhanger at the end for a trilogy leaves us, well, hanging. What we love in these stories is the dopamine rush it gives us by playing on our empathy, at least biologically speaking. It's a mix of excitement, anxiety, the suspense of fear, the sorrow of shame, and the adrenaline of hate, and tears of joy, and happiness, and love, and the sense of pride, and respect. I salute you! All wrapped up in one commercial. Of course, we don't really want all that for ourselves. We like to see it played out in a more disconnected way. While we love the excitement, we dread the anxiety. Joy is awesome! Pain is stupid. The main factors that control our lives is desire, wrapped in emotions of fear, shame, hate, love, respect, pride. These emotions drives us crazy. But what are we to do? This is the heart of us, the core of who we are, and it's killing us. Bottom line up front, we desire to get the girl, but if we can't get the girl, then we'll be the monster that eats the girl. Quite frankly, what we desire is connection, companionship. We have a very real base desire to be connected that gives us life. And being disconnected feels like death. I like a desire to a big red balloon with a string on it. It's what we desire, filled with our love, either tied to something or held by someone or floating away from us. We can get caught up in our desires or can carry us off into oblivion. I should reference the French short film on this, The Red Balloon. The Red Balloon is a film short that was used on school children for decades as some sort of social conditioning experiment. I can't prove that. But this conspiracy theory of mine is shared by many of us because we still don't have a clue why we had to watch this freaky short 1956 movie year after year in school. If you're not familiar with this film, you're lucky. But I'll give you my outline about it. The Red Balloon is a French film called uh, Le Ballon Rouge. The story goes like this. There was this lonely boy who had no companion who found this lonely red balloon caught on some pole which he retrieved. And now he feels happy with this red balloon. He carried it everywhere, or at least tried. I mean, he was denied entry in many establishments and his school. Apparently, they had a, an anti-balloon mandate in Paris. He tried to sell it off to some old people on the streets who he assumed had no real purpose in life. I mean, they're old, so they just sit around all day, right? Why not tie your balloon to them until they get out of school eight hours later? They, of course, did the wise thing and frenchly told him to get lost, or Porta local. Finally, he just had to let it go. But as the saying goes, if you love something, let it go. If it loves you, it'll come back. And it did. The red balloon began to follow the little boy. This perked us up right away, and nothing anyone could do to keep this balloon from stalking this little boy. People tried to chase it off. 
hit it, yell at it in French. Yet nothing could keep this stalking balloon away from this boy. Finally, all the freaked out school children formed a mob and attacked this balloon to kill it. And they did. They killed the red balloon. I mean, ils ont chalui la ballon rouge. But wait, young minds. This ballon rouge will not die. No, you silly children. The spirit that haunted this balloon haunts all balloons. And all the balloons of Paris flies to the fallen balloon. It wasn't enough just to pay tribute to this fallen karma. No, they had to then snatch up the boy and carry him high into the sky to do what? We don't know. The film ends there. We are just left only to assume they dropped him to avenge Le Rouge. Or maybe he's still up there somewhere, haunting the children and the children's children who killed Le Rouge and their children's children. And who knows? They left it up to us adolescent minds to bring closure. Now, what message was I supposed to take from this? A boy passes by your window, followed by a red balloon. He stops, it stops, he moves, it moves. As the balloon's attachment to this boy is disturbing. Maybe it's an anti-predator awareness uh, film? Don't talk to strangers. Or be careful what you find companion with. Or it might have been some subliminal anti-drug campaign. Say no to drugs. It looks like fun at first, but it may become more attached to you than you to it. You can't bring it into your school, nor will your parents allow you to bring it home. And you can try to sell off to your neighbors, but they will not take it. But eventually, you'll try to run from it, but it keeps coming back. Instead of you seeking it, it seeks you. It will ruin your relationships with those around you and drive you out of school. And all your friends will have to push you away. They may try to help you by destroying this drug, but the addiction is already there. And other drugs will come from all over Paris to carry you away for good. That actually is not a bad analogy for this film. Bill it as an anti-drug film. If you take drugs, you have to watch this film. If you don't take drugs, you're free to go to recess. Now, being all grown up and maturish, I see these thriller and horror movies with red balloons and laugh. I know exactly what reference this was from and why this red balloon is a foreboding symbol. Those writers suffered through the same disturbing film I did, The Red Balloon. It's used as a lure by the alien child-eating monster in Stephen King's The It and as a symbol used in a horror movie, The Luring, which obviously used Les Bains Rouge as its reference. In a world where balloons come alive, the boy in red balloon is back and seeks their revenge. Yeah, I could have wrote that. All that to say is how overused and abused this red balloon image has become. <laughs> so I guess I'll use it here too. In our analogy, the balloon represents the object of a desire, and the string is what holds this desire. You are the little boy, unless you're a girl. Then you're a girl, playing the role of the little boy. You have your balloon and have filled it with your love. This now, you think to yourself, gives me what I desire. Or so you think. Pop your balloon and you cry. If your balloon deflates, you'll cry. And if you lose your balloon and it flies away, you'll cry. I guess I made you a very emotional little boy. Why? It's very simple. You have perceived, you found that thing that will be the means to your desired end. And that is exciting. You love it, you respect it, you're so proud of it. But there is a dark side to this balloon as well. 
Maybe your desire is being held away from you from some antagonist. This is the bad guy in the story. And now this thing stands between you and your desire. While the red balloon is the object of your desire, it is the obstacle of your desire. I think of it, like the it in Stephen King's novel It, a horror thriller novel in the movie about some space alien demon monster who needs to eat adrenochrome-filled blood of children to survive, therefore appears in a way that produces the highest level of fear in his victims. The child's object of desire is to live in a world of peace and not fear. Maybe get the girl in the story. If you're not familiar with the story, um, we follow a group of children as they seek to find the missing boy, having to battle their own fears and desires and this demon alien baby eater. It's kind of like Stand By Me, but with an alien shape-shifting demon monster chasing. In this story, the use refer to the antagonist as it, the obstacle that is keeping the desire away from them. Defeat this it, and they will get the balloon back, so to speak. Just to be clear, they're not actually trying to get a real balloon back. <laughs> That'd be silly, and a funnier story. Our desire will bring us both excitement and anxiety. The excitement of holding on to our own object of desire, or an anxiety of not having it, or it being taken away from us. And that thing we become fixated on will become it whether it's the object of desire or the obstacle to the desire. You may see someone you desire, but are they a monster? And while we think the obstacles are outside of ourselves, we need to understand it can also be ourselves. Desire is a fragile thing, just like communication. Even when you find the right someone who carries your desire, you can turn yourself into an obstacle with nothing more than a twist of the tongue or a foot in the mouth. Desire is our heart, the core. It's us up front. The odd thing about our heart is that there is a hole right in the center of it, which is why it seems we are always missing something, like we're not complete. While many assume that we need to fill this void with something that I say not true. A donut is made with a hole for a reason. Putting donut holes inside of donuts won't make it whole, just as putting someone or something in our heart won't make us whole. It's not a hole. The donut is whole with the hole. Our heart is whole with the hole. For the donut creator, as legend goes, because the center of the small fried cakes on the ship he was on often was still raw in the center, Hanson Gregory suggested making them without a center, in a torus shape. Thus, we get the modern-day donut. Our heart, I argue, is also made with a hole in the middle. Not for something to fill it, but to draw us to live in such a way that is fulfilling. Our heart needs to love and be loved, which is what needs to be going through our heart at all times. That is what fulfillment is. And that is the base desire we have. If we don't get it when we're born, we die. And I don't mean that sarcastically or emotionally, I mean that biologically. Let me give you some proof of the non-physical need to our physical body. There's two historical stories. Frederick II was a Holy Roman Emperor in the 13th century. He conducted an experiment on infants to determine if there was a hardwired natural language that would come out of us by default. If we never heard of any other language, 
His hypothesis was that by restricting all interaction with the children, such as coddling or talking, to just the basic physical needs, the children would communicate in some form of natural language. Then the debate between who held the first language would be solved. Is it Latin? Is it German? Is it Greek? Hebrew? Etc. Tragically, according to the chronicles written by Frederick Scribe Salabedin de Aladam, all the children in this experiment reportedly died. Instead of an investigation into language, this experiment turned into an exposition of neglect of nurture. And even more tragic is this story is not the only one, but history seems to continue to repeat itself even as early as the 20th century in the United States of America. In 1914 and 1950, Dr. Henry Dwight Chapman collected data into the mortality rate of children, specifically infants, in New York institutions. In many of these public asylums, the mortality rate of infants was 100%. If a baby was born and abandoned to one of these institutions, that baby was guaranteed to die. Dr. Chapman and his wife, Alice, spent their lives in a pursuit to save these poor, abandoned children who came mainly from the influx of an immigrants, mostly Catholic and Jewish families, who were generally of the lowest character, you know, like alcoholics living in really extreme poverty. Converting the top floor of their home into a nursery, Dr. Chapman and his wife, Alice, found that they had a greater success rate in infant mortality than the asylums. The details of the study really put the problem into perspective. In the study of 50,000 babies in 1914 and again in 1915, from all the institutions, 92% of the babies died in the first year. That is 46,670 infants. That leaves only 3,300 babies left. Out of these, 680 babies died before they turned 5 years old. Of the most crucial time for survival, Dr. Trapman found that from birth to three months old, 73% died. That is 36,500 babies. What they found was that the first month of the baby's life was more important than the next month. And the first three months of the baby's life was more important than the next three months. And then the first six months of the baby's life was more important than the next six months and so on. During this time, Dr. Chapman developed a system of homes that would provide hands-on care for infants until the adopting family could be found. These, as well as his own nursery, proved to turn the statistics on its head. Infants were least likely to die under conditions where a motherly touch could be applied. The key part, Dr. Chapman had noted, where there is no love, there would be no life. Where there is no love, there would be no life. Without satisfaction of nurturing our base desire, there would be no will to live, no reason to live. Love, being the nurturing affection between one and another, is vital to our physical survival as infants and remains vital to our physical health for the rest of our lives. Dr. Ben Benjamin, in his article, The Premacy of Human Touch, talks about the policy of coddling in hospitals today with infants in urgent care and the increased survival rate as a result. But what was also interesting was that these volunteers who gave their time to massage, touch, hold, rock these babies were also gaining a benefit. They were found to be living longer, were healthier, and happier. What this study showed was that there was a mutual benefit between both the child and the nurturer. The role the nurturer played in that baby's life gave them purpose, increasing their reason to live. 
which consciously or subconsciously motivate them to take better care of themselves. Like Newton's third law, where it describes the mutual and simultaneously interaction between an object and the second object of its surroundings, this loving touch results in acceptance that brings fulfillment to both objects involved in the interaction. Love is a two-way connection, one that cannot be complete unless it's accepted. This need to love and to be loved is a developmental element found even in animals. Harry F. Holloway and Stephen J. Somini conducted an experiment regarding the effects of isolations on macaque monkeys taken away from the mothers and peers. The purpose of their study was to design a process that could reverse the adverse effects of subjects psychologically damaged by isolation and neglect. What they discovered was these monkeys exhibited similar effects that humans have under similar circumstances of isolation at a very young age. Not only similarities in youth, but also into their adulthood. In their findings, the key factor to the behavior of the isolated monkeys was due to the mother's lack of attention. They discovered how important the macaque mother was in teaching their young appropriate social behavior. Without a mother, the young monkeys were socially awkward for the rest of their lives. In comparison, children who come from abusive situations, especially when concerning their mother, also have become socially awkward, and like the monkey, very rarely ever fully recover. I would argue that it is this basic desire as a whole that develops our other desires, and ultimately our character. How? It directs our focus to observation. We observe what we want to see and know. It influences our thinking, prioritizing what's important to our heart and not wasting our time and anything else, even as vital to our own good character. And it, of course, develops our attitude, which is our resolve and motivation. While desire alone does not completely define who we are, it lays out the plans and becomes the cornerstone to the foundation of our character. Consider the importance of this development when decisions are needed that will affect our ability to nurture our children. I personally believe that if it's between whether we bring home more bacon or provide more nurture, I would go with nurture every time. Mothers, love your children. The laws of nature demand it. It is our desire to be loved. And to be loved, we must love. Like throwing a ball against the wall. Expect back only what you put out. If life fulfillment is through love, then love connected is the power that turns our life on and passes from my heart to your heart, making us both whole. I'm James, and this is Noble Peasant, a podcast dedicated to pulling the heartstrings of your character. Stop by our website at peasantpodcast.com or give us an email at noblepeasantpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and woot do 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 do. All you need is love. Love, love, love. Love is all you need.